Good afternoon and welcome back to the Conservatarian Exchange on the Liberty Block, streamed on Facebook Live and hosted today by our regular panel of Ed M, Ed P, Gina, Mike, and myself, Steve. We're proud to share with you diverse opinions on current events and issues from some of the best and brightest, whose worldviews range from more conservative to quite libertarian. As always, following the conclusion of this live show, it will be available within an hour or two as a podcast, which can be found on SoundCloud and most podcast apps, as well as on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey by searching for the Liberty Block. We invite feedback, questions, and comments from our live and podcast listeners, either through comments on Facebook Live during the show or by sending an email to the Conservatarian Exchange at libertyblock.com. For this episode, we're happy to have with us once again as a special guest, Mr. Daniel Miller, the president of the Texas Nationalist Movement, with whom I was honored to appear on a panel related to secession and peaceful separation movements at the recent Liberty Forum in Manchester, New Hampshire. With that long introduction, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Howdy. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome, Daniel. Well, I, you know, it's David said honored. I, I would suggest he not oversell it. <laughs> you should have seen what I was going to say. I was going to commend him. That was quite a preamble. That was, all right. that was impressive. Had I known he was going to be dressed formally, I would have really gone all out. But whatever he says it's a texas rule anyway since daniel has agreed to be our guest i'm going to give him first shots um he can share with us whatever he feels like about the texas election tell us what he ran for what happened why it happened and any other texas news he'd like to share go ahead oh man i you know you're asking me to monopolize the show uh you know what what's going on is is insane but look for for those who don't know um my name is daniel miller president of the texas nationalist movement uh, I ran uh, as a Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, and uh, we just got wrapped up on March the 1st, and uh, I can tell you that uh, we have, along with pretty much every other uh, candidate in this race, uh, well, across all races in Texas, because literally everything was on the ballot, uh, found a, a tremendous number of, of anomalies, and it's something that we're we're still investigating. But uh, it it was uh, Stephen. It was a, a phenomenal opportunity for us to to get out there and, and talk about issues that are uh, very important to Texans. Uh, talk about how disconnected Texas is really from the federal system. Uh, how the leadership in the state are effectively facilitating the uh, destruction of our liberty and our sovereignty uh, by cooperating with and putting up almost no resistance to the federal government. And uh, definitely one of the unintended byproducts of this election uh, has been our ability to sniff out and expose election irregularities in what will turn out to be the most expensive election ever held in Texas. And that was a really good intro. Um, my understanding is that Lieutenant Governor, and posi uh, the position is much different in Texas than many places, if you want to touch on that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, Texas uh, post-Reconstruction in, in the post-Reconstruction Constitution, uh, the Constitution of 1876, uh, had a serious problem with uh, a strong governorship. 
So what they effectively did was they split up the power of the governor into a whole slew of elected positions, and one of those being uh, the position of lieutenant governor. So our lieutenant governor is directly elected. Uh, it's not elected out of a, uh, the Senate, not appointed out of the Senate, doesn't run on a ticket with the governor. Uh, it is its own thing. And by virtue of the fact that they wanted to weaken the position of the governor, uh, it effectively made the lieutenant governor constitutionally the, the strongest position in Texas government. Um, and part of that is because they control the entire flow of legislation as president of the Senate. So if things come out of the House they don't care for, they, they have the ability to kill it and vice versa, you know, they can really set the agenda. And so the, the, the running gag since 1876 has been that uh, if something gets done, uh, it gets done when the lieutenant governor wants it to get done. And if it doesn't get done, it doesn't get done because the lieutenant governor doesn't want it to get done. So there is a, have, has been a tendency as of late, uh, particularly with the last two uh, lieutenant governors that we had, David Dewhurst and now Dan Patrick, to really uh, kind of play slow and low, but behind the scenes, be a kingmaker. Um, and unfortunately, they have also acquiesced in deferring a lot of statutory authority to the governor. So they, uh, the governor has uh, effectively extra constitutionally become a more powerful position through executive orders and things of that nature, which came, you know, that, that was a, a key part of, uh, of a lot of the election, this go around was uh, an attempt to form a, a true constitutional check and balance against the, uh, the power of the governor. Okay, and um, I'm told that there was a very, very low turnout in the primaries. Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, you know, when you when you look at the primaries, I mean, voter turnout in the primaries is always pretty low. You know, it's it's a, a pretty low turnout. But uh, interestingly enough, and, and we've got some, you know, we've got we released some charts and analysis of this compared to four years ago. Uh, one of the things that that we were hearing out of the counties during the uh, during the, the early voting, because Texas has two weeks of early voting ahead of um, any election, uh, was that turnout in the counties was abysmal during early voting. Uh, but yet when the numbers posted going into election day of early voting turnout, that's not what the numbers showed at all. And so, um, you know, we're part, part of the research post-election that we're doing is to try to find out exactly um, how, how that was possible. Um, but you, uh, one of the charts, and, and if you go back on my live stream last week, um, I do a, a live stream every Wednesday night called Late Night Coffee Talk, I actually unpacked a lot of the really core questions that people should have about this election and how it was conducted. And frankly, that was one of them. Um, the, the turnout numbers from early voting and general election in comparison to four years ago defied all statistical explanation, right? It bucked every single trend that you could imagine that are trends going back decades. So it's uh, definitely a question on the minds of a lot of people here in Texas as to what, what exactly happened and uh, really and truly how it happened. So I think, as I mentioned to you in New Hampshire, if Texas going through what it's going through with illegal immigration doesn't rebel against incumbents now, what will it take? And I think that has a lot of national implications, obviously, as well. Sure. Sure. I mean, look, the, the number one issue for Texas voters for the last 20 years via third party polling, no matter who it comes from. 
immigration and the border are two combined issues, right? You combine those two, they are the number one issue for Texas voters. It's their number one concern, and it's understandable why. Uh, you know, I likened it when I was out on the campaign trail. Uh, you know, you had 160,000 Allied troops land on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day in what was arguably the greatest amphibious invasion in modern history. Uh, and yet you have that many illegal aliens that are crossing the uh, Texas-Mexico border every single solitary month. Uh, they are aided by the cartels, and the border sheriffs will tell you uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the cartels are in control, effectively in control of the border. Uh, and so you have the cartels, the narco terrorist criminal gangs that are facilitating human trafficking, sex trafficking, every kind of trafficking you can imagine. They're in effective control of the border. Uh, then you have the federal government who is incentivizing this by giving your taxpayer dollars to NGOs to once those people are interdicted, putting them through processing, handing them cash and a plane ticket and shipping them to cities all over Texas and the rest of the United States. Yeah, I mean, they're flying them everywhere, effectively turning every place in the United States into a, into a border town. So all of the things that have been uh, effectively isolated to the Texas border over the last 30 to 40 years are coming to a neighborhood near you. Uh, and, and we're not talking about, uh, you know, refugees that are fleeing political or religious persecution. Uh, we're talking about folks that are just, you know, maybe they're looking for a better life, maybe they're not. But the fact that we don't know who they are is part and parcel of the problem. And, and I think we can see where this is really headed because when the cartels gained operational control of the border, one of the things that happened was Texas immediately became the number one state for human and sex trafficking. All four of Texas major cities became number one through four for human and sex trafficking. They are selling children into sex slavery. This is what's happening. Um, we're, we're talking about massive increases in murders, rapes, robberies, aggravated crimes. Uh, and then that's not to mention the $12 billion strain on the Texas taxpayer uh, that we get from the strain on the infrastructure. So uh, it, it is no, no question why it is the number one concern of, uh, of Texas voters when the federal government is effectively facilitating the invasion. Uh, but I think from a Texas perspective, one of the biggest challenges that we have with our local leadership, uh, you know, when we talk about the, the leadership in Austin, is they have the constitutional authority to declare it an invasion and do a full deployment of the Texas military department to secure the border. And they won't do it. Instead, we get from uh, Governor Greg Abbott, who we refer to lovingly as Governor Winsock, uh, we get a partial deployment with almost no clear uh, mission in something called Operation Lone Star. Uh, I suggested that it should be renamed to be called Operation Chupacabra. Because much like a chupacabra, uh, people say that they've seen it. When they describe it, it sounds terrifying. But at the end of the day, it doesn't actually exist. Uh, that's Greg Abbott's border plan. So uh, the number one thing that needs to be done from a state perspective, given the fact that we know the federal government will not address this issue because they have no vested interest in doing so, uh, is to fully militarize the Texas State Guard, the one branch of the Texas military department that cannot be federalized, shift uh, two-thirds of that $3 billion of state money that's gone into border protection to militarizing the State Guard, expanding their enlistment and deploying them as a border protection force to do what the federal government is failing to do under their constitutional duties. So I'm gonna, I want to ask everybody else here. We have people here from North Carolina, two from North Carolina, one from New Jersey, one from Virginia, and I live in the uh, Republic of New York. 
I'm not affected by illegal immigration where I am immediately, but I'm curious if those of you in the other states, if you get any of this trickling up. I can guarantee you there was a stash house up the street, like almost guarantee it. And I can tell you just in like the little town to the, oh God, what is it? To the West of me is nothing but illegal aliens. Most of them are from Honduras and from Guatemala. Um, and yeah, it's nothing but illegals. I used to um, sit there and volunteer at the pregnancy crisis center and I was their translator. And yeah, they, none of them have permisos or I-94s or any type of documentations. None of them are lappers. They're all here, are legally admitted permanent resident. They're all here illegally. Do any, are any of you privy to the so-called the flights and buses that are coming up from Texas or you don't really run into that directly? No, but I, I'm here in Virginia. I was going to go to a conference in May that was being held at this conference center that has hundreds and hundreds of um, hotel rooms and conference space. And they said that the venue canceled because the entire facility is being used to house Afghan refugees. And so now the conference organizers are trying to uh, um, scramble to find another venue for the conference. And uh, having been you know, at this venue before, it's like, wow, it could fit most of Kabul in there. I mean, my God. They, they at one point, and this was years ago, but I just want to put this out there because it was quite amusing. So years ago, and this would have been under the Obama administration. So we had nowhere to deport um, anybody at all. And we had a, a crisis with housing. They actually were sending the illegal immigrants to our federal law enforcement training centers. They were staying in our lodging, like where we would go for specialized training. And I was just, and that was years ago. Oh my gosh. And I was just blown away. But supposedly there was some flights during the middle of the night happening at our little um, local airport there in Hickory. And um, I don't know if you've heard about that, but those three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning flights were supposedly uh, coming into Hickory as well. Not too long ago. Gina, you did border patrol, right? I sure was. Yeah. My brother still is, but he's up in the Northern border right now. And, and you were in Texas? Mm -hmm. Sure was. So you've seen it firsthand. Oh, I have. No, yeah. Yes, most definitely. And, you know, the system's been broken for so long. I can't tell you how many times, you know, we would arrest somebody, they would get sent back. And then, like, two days later, they're behind you at the grocery store line. I'm like, are you flipping kidding me? Like, hey, Jose, how are you? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's ridiculous. The system's been so broken. So I was very happy um, to see the policies put in place by the Trump administration. And I was very devastated to see them yeah. taken away. And, um, construction of the wall stop because I've seen firsthand what that wall does. I watched as I was in Arizona when the wall came down in Nogales, you know, they would just do like 50, 50 yard sections at a time. And even though there was security and everything there, you know, to be, um, what is the word I'm looking for? To be a show of force and National Guard up on the hills, soon as those panels came down, is they just came like flying monkeys going everywhere. It was crazy. Yeah, it's you important know, to understand that, uh, you know, there's no longer any difference between, quote unquote, legal immigration and illegal immigration. It's it's essentially all illegal immigration that is somehow being legalized by granting refugee status to uh, these people who have no business uh, coming into the United States. So I, I don't even talk about like, quote unquote, immigration anymore. It's all like you know, it's all illegal migrants as far as I'm concerned. 
Well, look, one of the major drivers, and you know, we we've seen this uh, because we've seen the people effectively beginning to politically rebel against this. You know what? You you can't discount that one of the major drivers behind the pro Brexit vote during the entire Brexit debate was. Uh, the fact that the people of the UK were sick and tired of unrestricted mass migration that was effectively being facilitated by EU policy, you know, and, and here we find ourselves in a similar situation. I mean, when, when we describe what's really happening to people, because most people don't understand this, but when we, when we walk them through the fact that the federal government is effectively in these countries down in, in Central America and South America facilitating this, right? They're encouraging they're, they're cheering them on. They're telling them everything they can get. And in some instances, through NGOs, uh, organizing them to get to Mexico to connect with the cartel so they could get smuggled across. Uh, and then, you know, we talk about how organized the cartels are. Uh, the sheriff of Goliad County put, released a video and, I, and uh, you know, I'll have to, you'll have to just look for it on YouTube. You'll find it. But um, of what their county deals with. And, you know, if you know anything about uh, Texas geography, you know, Goliad County is not a border county, right? It's not a Maverick County, a Webb County, you know, it's not one of those guys, but what they're dealing with that far inland uh, to the point that they're showing that the cartels are actually issuing out wristband, colored wristbands as they process people so they know which raft and which crossing to go to. I mean, it's an organized operation. Uh, and, and, you know, while many people think that this is about, you know, immigrants from Mexico, it's not, they're coming from everywhere. The entire Del Rio crisis was Haitian migrants. Right. But then, you know, their, their entire goal is to just get on the other side of the river so that they can purposely be interdicted because then the system, once they set foot on, they go into federal processing, right. They're tipping, they're generally helped across the river by Texas State Guard or Texas National Guard, uh, and in some instances, uh, Border Patrol, they're helped across and then they're put into processing. Well, when they are put into processing, after processing, they're, they're given over to the NGOs, like Catholic Charities and people like that, who place them on buses, ship them to an airport. Here in Texas, typically it's Houston Intercontinental, or perhaps they're in San Antonio, but they're shipped off to these airports. They stand in the line. The NGO comes and gives them a, a, an envelope with $1,500 cash and a plane ticket. And then when that, those envelopes are handed out, one person pops out of the line. And we've spoken with people who work at IH and have seen this firsthand. One person pops out of the line, goes down the line, takes his cut of the cash, and then leaves. They get on a plane, and then they're shipped to either someplace in Texas or someplace around the rest of the United States. Where they get to, where they get to live off of not just the fifteen hundred dollars, but are given benefits and subsidies and and access to every public service you could possibly imagine. That is coming out of our pockets, and they're effectively because of a, a very lax and pathetic screening process. They are effectively letting in, uh, you know, one hundred sixty thousand people every single solitary month, shipping almost none of them back. Right. And those are the ones that are being caught. There was literally a story in the news two days ago of a four-year-old child that was found drowned in the river near Eagle Pass. And they contacted her next of kin, who was her mother, who had already been crossed over, processed, and was living now in Miami to get her to come claim the body of her child. So this is the kind of thing that, that we're dealing with. And people need to understand that the federal government is facilitating this. 
100% making it happen. And the state governments, which have the power to repel invasions, are not standing in the gap between their, the people they are sworn to protect and this invasion. And that includes the federal government's role in it. And here in New York City, and I just heard somewhere else they're trying to do this. I don't, I don't know the details. Um, we're going we're gonna to let them vote in non-federal elections. Mike and Ed, you guys are real quiet. Nothing. Yeah, because no for those votes you were talking about, I think that added, what was it, 800,000 votes to those local races, letting the illegals vote in that, if I remember correctly, for what you're talking about there in New York City? New York City, it's a lot, yeah. New York City is, I think New York City passed it, and I think the state of it California did, yeah. has proposed it. I know New York City passed something, and I know it involves tens of thousands, maybe more. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's real, so. Dan, I want to ask you something. You, sure. you talked about you talked about voter integrity, voting integrity, and you've got a very friendly panel on that. I think all all five of us would agree with you on it. But that said, Greg Abbott got sixty seven percent of the vote, and Dan Patrick got I think seventy seven percent of the vote. I don't think that they stole the election. I mean, there may have been irregularities. Isn't 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 focusing on voter integrity? as opposed to focusing on revamping the Republican Party, a distraction? Yeah, and I, and I want to be clear. Uh, it's not a focus on voter integrity, although that's important, making sure that only those people that are supposed to vote are the ones that vote. Uh, but it really is election integrity. And, and it has been a fight here in Texas for quite some time. And I, I'm not claiming the election was stolen, right? What, what I'm claiming is is that we cannot rely, the, the results of the election are not reliable, right? And that's, that's, so isn't, a, isn't it that's more a big difference. I agree with that, but isn't the more important issue that the Republican Party is not re reliable and that we can't rely on them to protect our liberties and to fight for our country? Well, look, that, that's, a, that's a whole other conversation that we can have, right? But, you know, you, there, are, there are a lot of issues related to election integrity that we've got to contend with. Number one is uh, we have to find out exactly what happened across the board, right? Because I, I'm not going to say at this moment that there was intentional manipulation, uh, but we can already point to very specific examples where the probability of that is quite high. And uh, as, as we continue with what we're getting ready to do and we're cooperating with many other candidates uh, that participate in this election and many other, uh, many other uh, organizations that are also in tune with this, uh, I can tell you that the statistical anomalies, the trend anomalies, uh, the outright violations by county officials and election administrators of the law, not just Harris County where Houston is, um, and the fact that there exists a very clear voter intention data set of a massive quantity of Republican primary voters, that uh, the outcome of that did not match the outcome of the election. Uh, there's every reason right now for people to be suspicious of this. And, and I believe at the end of the day, uh, or if we are able to mine out all of the facts, all of the data presented, I think everyone else will come to the to the unmistakable conclusion that there was definitely some intentional putting of the thumb on the scales, uh, but also uh, such a high level of incompetence that is beyond belief. Uh, and but but to your point about the Republican Party, that's a that's a, a debate that can be had about the role of any of the political parties in the election process, uh, and especially here in Texas where. 
unfortunately, because of years and years and years of statute, uh, the political parties have a, a um, I would say, an unfair uh, and unwarranted place within tex- the Texas election code to the, pa- to the point that the two major political parties have become a de facto, a de facto first step in the process of any election. And I don't believe any private organization should be so ingrained in your election laws as to be an indispensable part of it. I just think that on issue after issue, the Republican Party stands in the way of meaningful reform. And that includes election integrity. I would say it almost, election integrity is almost one of the signature issues where the Republican Party will not get behind it. Uh, The Republican Party could be blowing up the whole January 6th commission. They won't. Uh, You know, they could have challenged different election uh, results in Georgia, in Wisconsin, in Arizona. I mean, they they tried in Arizona, but it was sort of a half-hearted attempt, as far as I could tell. Um, And it just seems like that's the problem. The problem is the Republican Party will not fight and will not do what's necessary to, to protect our liberties and to protect our republic. And we can fight for election integrity, but you know, it'd be one thing if we were fighting the Democrats who are the real cheaters, but I mean, I'm not sure, sure the Republicans aren't cheaters too. I mean, they seem very vested in the system. Uh, they seem very vested in, in almost anything the Democrats do. They're willing to fight to protect Democrat strongholds, but they don't seem willing to fight for, for our liberties. Look, it's a, it is a people versus political establishment battle. And, and that's one of the things that, that I've tried to tell people uh, is that you got to get out of, the, out of your minds the, the partisan fight on this particular issue. It is a people versus political establishment. Uh, you know, I think one of the sterling examples is our Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick, after the 2020 election, put out a bounty uh, to anyone who could conclusively prove Uh, any instance of voter fraud. And I believe it was in Pennsylvania where he wound up having to pay the bounty to a progressive Democrat who conclusively showed and proved that it was a Republican that, that cheated in a particular election. I mean, talk about swallowing that pill, right? Um, but you know, I, I guess Dan Patrick cares more about honoring his promises to progressive Democrats. than he does Texas voters, but I digress. That's a pre-March first conversation that we should have had. Um, but But Dan, um, Okay, so it looks like we're going to be stuck with um, uh, Governor Abbott for another four years. So from, I mean, better than Beto, but, you know, so from your perspective, what do Texans and and what do we have to do to make um, Governor Abbott behave with a little bit more spine uh, towards this illegal immigration crisis than he did in his first term? Uh, Well, you know, since we refer to him by that endearing term of Governor Winsock, it's important to remember that Greg Abbott doesn't do anything before he licks his finger and sticks it in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. And so, you know, the key key thing about him is really and truly he is motivated primarily by public pressure, the thought that he may lose some sort of popularity. Uh, one, of, one of the reasons he flew into a tailspin when he had three credible challengers challenging him in the primary. I mean, Don Huffines got, you know, if you could rely on the results, you know, he got less of a percentage of the vote than Alan West, but yet Don Huffines and Alan West were able to move and spur Greg Abbott to action uh, to basically shift on, on this issue to the point that 
you know, Colonel West had called for the, to, to essentially remove or relieve the major general of the Texas military department, Texas military forces, remove her from her post. And Greg Abbott came out today, obviously, or yesterday, a bit late saying that he was going to remove her. So, um, you know, Huffines, when he exposed the issue of uh, indoctrination, you know, some of the CRT being pushed uh, and, you know, some of the transgender issues being pushed, uh, classes for public employees, uh, Huffines exposed that, Abbott reacted. Uh, it goes on and on and on like that. So, you know, I, I think I think it is proven that Greg Abbott, frankly, most of the rest of it can be pushed in a certain direction, given a, a pro, an appropriate amount of exposure and public pressure. OK, so I'm going to ask now, coming from the pessimistic viewpoint, all of this is to win the primaries and then to get all the suckers who didn't want him winning the primaries to say, well, he's better than the alternative let's all work hard to vote for the Republican. And then he has a four-year mandate of saying, guess what, you reelected me to do exactly what I've been doing and I don't need to change anything. And why shouldn't that be true? Yeah, I mean- He's gonna be I, less accountable now. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I say about Sununu right. in New Hampshire. If he's reelected, he's just gonna laugh his head off and say, two years ago, you wanted to impeach me for what I was doing. Now you reelected me. And it's the I, same pattern. They crush you in the primary, they run against the Democrat to say, you got to vote for me because I'm better than the alternative. And then they turn around and say, hey, I got a mandate to do what I did. And then they crush you even more the next go round. I mean, to, to your to your point, I mean, I, I think that you could potentially look at it that way. But you also have to remember that the vast majority of these guys do internal polling all throughout the election. They know, they know where they stand at any given time. They know where, they know where the people, uh, are, are on these issues by and large. And it's one of the reasons that Abbott had to run far more to the right than he was comfortable doing. Uh, but you know, they will tell you flat out that there's campaigning and then there's governing, uh, which means that from the standpoint of people like us, uh, we can't let up. You know, I wrote in, in my book, Texit that one of the biggest hold holdups for Texas, one of the biggest obstacles was this short-term political thinking, right? This, uh, this idea that somehow our levels of passion and activism were tied to the election cycle. Um, most people need to understand that the elect, the next election cycle has effectively already started. Uh, it's already there, right? It's already happening. We haven't even got to the general yet, and we're already looking at the next cycle. Uh, the legislative session, the direction of the legislative session is being written at this moment right now. So if, if we, as, as people that are, you know, in, involved in advocacy, if we just say, okay, well, the primaries are done, I guess we're done till the runoffs. And then I guess we're done till the general election. Oh, well, we didn't get what we wanted. So I'll go off for, you know, six, eight weeks, six months, go suck my thumb, go talk to my therapist. Well, guess what? That's what they're counting on. Those guys never sleep. They never stop. They're, they're like the worst version of the Terminator, except they don't know which bathroom they're supposed to use. Right. Uh, I mean, they're, they, that's the way they are. And so it, the moment that we let our guard down, we have to understand that they are still working. So as, as advocates, as activists, as people who actually give a damn about these issues, we have to get out there and continue to work. It doesn't matter. March 1st, is in is in the rearview mirror for us, right? 
But March 2nd, all the reasons for doing what we did leading up to March 1st still existed. So that means we have to keep fighting because I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I don't countenance a quitter. Uh, and, and I don't think that the battle is ever, ever over until we allow it to be over. We're not defeated until we accept the defeat. Question. You guys are only meet every two years in the legislature down there. 140 days every other year. How many other states is like that, guys? New Jersey is completely the opposite. They meet way too often. Virginia uh, meets 90 days every year. Every year. Yeah. And North Carolina? I think they're in session both years, aren't they, Gina? So Texas is an Yes, honor. they are. Sorry. So, Daniel, my, my question for you is you're chalking this up mainly to political fear and cowardice. Um, you know, Republicans tend, when it comes to immigration, are um, accused of standing up for big business interests because they want all those workers coming in. Do you think Abbott is beholden to any interest like that? Well, yeah. I mean, look, Abbott checks polls and then he checks the donor rolls. I mean, that's just, that's just the bottom line. Uh, and, and he's not the only one, you know, I had a state rep here. Tell me one time we, we had a, had a pretty candid conversation with him and he said, look, do you, do you really understand how these constituent contacts work? And I said, yeah, I have a pretty good idea. He says, well, let me tell you how it works in my office and, and other people. He said, when we get a phone call from a constituent or any kind of communication, he says, the first thing we do is to look up and see if they are in our, in our district. Right. He says, the second thing we do is look to see if they vote. The next thing is we look to see if they vote in the Republican primary. And then the final thing we do is to look and see if they donated any money to the campaign. And he says it gets prioritized accordingly. So, you know, when you're talking about a resistance on the part of the elected class to, to dealing with issues like immigration in the border or, you know, the, the grid or any of the issues that we're facing here, um, uh, one of the things that you got to do is follow the money, you know, and understand that they're looking at both. They're looking at how much they're getting in campaign contributions, how it's going to affect the donor class and how, how it's going to change the prospects that they get uh, unelected the next go around. You know, how much of a popular uprising is there on this particular issue? And so, you know, one of the things that we encourage people to do is beyond getting organized and getting allowed is also find your candidates and start donating money. I mean, that's just the bottom line. We're, we're always outspent. Uh, the good news is, is that we don't have to hit them dollar for dollar. But the bad news is, is that we can't, we, you know, thoughts, prayers, hopes, wishes, and dreams uh, are really great, but you can't buy TV time with them. Yeah, listen, money is the mother's milk of politics, and that's not going to change. But, you know, the good news to me is in this day and age, you can get around that. And here in New, in New Jersey, we had our sitting a Senate president, a Democrat who had been real, one of the most powerful Democrats in Trenton, been down there forever, and he lost to a truck driver who basically didn't spend any money. So it's certainly possible. I think we lost Daniel. No, oh, everybody just switched boxes on my screen. Any more questions for Daniel about Texas? Yeehaw. So um, <laughs> you may have saying, said this earlier, um, but where do you personally uh, live and hang out? Are you in the Houston area? I, I'm actually close to Houston. I live uh, in a town called Nederland between Beaumont and Port Arthur. Uh, okay. we, we tell That's people, where my in-laws are at. They're in Port Arthur. 
Are they my really? ex-in-laws, yes, they are. I used to go there all the time. It's way yep. too dang humid. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. Oh well, yeah, T tell me about it. As I travel Texas, uh, you know, one of the things that I could tell is the, the humidity of each region. And the longer I stay mm -hmm. away, the worse it is. But I tell people we're, you know, we're close enough. We're almost Louisiana, right? Yeah. But we're still we're still in Texas, but the gumbo is good. <laughs> you know, so that's that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I'm in Northern Virginia, and of course there's uh, <clears throat> hardly any Americans left in Northern Virginia. Um, uh, so I was wondering, you know, how, how has it impacted, you know, your, how has all this illegal immigrant immigration impacted your particular community? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not seeing as much uh, of an issue like as a place like the urban areas, because that's typically where, where they're get you know, where they're getting flown to and shipped to, uh, and Houston has become sort of a, a transit port where they're shipping, where they're busing them to IAH and then putting them on planes and, and leaving. But you know, the, the thing to remember is, is that Texas has been effectively under attack on the immigration system from the federal side for a long time. Uh, back when Perry was governor and uh, Obama was president, uh, they had the alien transfer and exit program. I don't know if you guys have, have heard of that or remember that, but they were literally taking illegal aliens that were being interdicted in California, Arizona, New Mexico, putting them on buses and shipping them to Presidio, Texas, and then kicking them across, basically going to the international bridge and emptying the bus and say, go out there. Well, the other side of that bridge is the Chihuahuan Desert. So there's no way they can hike across any civilization. So so what they were doing was staying, walking, you know, two to five miles down uh, the border and then and crossing right back. back over. Yeah, Those are the ones I was talking about. I'd see them two days later. And that was, that was the same thing with us. We'd yeah. take them to the, to the nearest uh, port of entry. You drop them off and they're right back. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Presidio County is a pretty lightly populated county. And I think, I think what, what was it? It was like 34,000 a week were being dumped out there. And that was during the Obama administration. I mean, it was like, it was insane what was happening, but well, you know, this goes back a long way. Since no one is going to take up my suggestion and do operation Ma Deuce on the border. Um, I think that, uh, I get I, that. I, I, I think that, uh, we ought to talk about Texit for a second because one of our, uh, our executive editor here at talk, talk about Bob, what, talk about what exactly what are talking about. That's right, because uh, uh, Elliot, uh, our executive editor, is in in the um, uh, in the big New Hampshire exit uh, movement. Now, I, my personal opinion on this, I'm going to I'm going to tell you, I think there's absolutely no chance of Texas uh, Texas secession or New Hampshire secession in normal bad times, which we're in right now. It's normal and it's bad. But I do think that if the people are primed for this, that it becomes an acceptable thing to talk about, that when a more serious crisis happens, the collapse of the dollar, World War III, then I think the, the priming that happens in this sort of normal bad time can uh, pay off. Um, you, you know what I mean? So I, I don't think that, you know, if if the world goes like it's going, Joe Biden is bad, gasoline's expensive, we have a recession, that thing. I don't think Texas or New Hampshire exit is going to happen. But I think that if something 
some crisis happens. I think if if the movement primed the people to think that you know that the federal government is doing way more to hurt us than to help us. So Ed, when, Ed I'm going to turn my pessimist hat over to the other Ed because I think he's the chief pessimist when it comes to yeah. But I wanted to I wanted to ask Dan about and would, uh, um, dollar no longer being the main um, yeah. vehicle of exchange in the world and are those crises things you're talking about? Right. Yeah. But I mean, that's what I wanted to talk about, Daniel. And, and, and how is your impression of moving the Overton window in Texas to include a possible secession as a, as a as a as a topic real people talk about in if in a, a crisis comes? Well, I mean that that presupposes that real people aren't talking about it already. I mean, you go go look at the dialogue in this election. I literally just had an interview with the Dallas Morning News yesterday. Uh, where the reporter is freaking out about the fact that so many of the state level candidates came out and publicly advocated for a vote on Texas. I mean, you know, we're talking about all of Abbott's main challengers. We're talking about every candidate for ag commissioner two two in my race. Um, you know, I think the only state level race that it did not come into play uh, was the attorney general's race. Um, and you know, that's, I think for obvious reasons, because there was a lot more there to talk about, but, um, you know, it, again, I think, I think the question presupposes that people aren't already talking about it and you have to look at it as I'm speaking now, not as a candidate, but from the standpoint of the organization, um, you, you understand that we've been pushing since our inception for a Texas vote, right? Uh, from starting in 2005, we know this issue was polling in single digits. The joke is always that uh, we've always polled higher than the approval rating of the U.S. Congress, right, which polls somewhere right above or below that of leprosy, right? That's their popularity. Uh, but, you know, from then, what we were seeing was we were not seeing that single digit percentage on the ground. What we saw was a lack of confidence that it was possible. So as we went through the capacity building phase of the organization and began to really start looking at this, you had some key polls that, that gave some clear indications. 2009, the Research 2000 poll showed half of Republicans, 40% of independents, and 15% of Democrats were in favor of, or they said Texas would be better off as an independent nation. Uh, but 2014, the Reuters-Ipsos poll, right around the time of the Scottish independence referendum, showed that a majority of Republicans, half of independent voters, and 35% of Democrats were in favor. And then there have been subsequent poll after poll after poll. But I'll put it to you this way. Would we be pushing so hard to put this to a vote of the people of Texas if they thought there was a snowball's chance in hell that we would lose? We understand that this is a once in a generation kind of vote, right? Yeah. There are only two examples over the last 100 years of countries that have voted for independence, voted it down and come back within 10 years and succeeded, right? So the track record is once you get it to a vote, the track record is almost 100% in favor that it's going to happen within the next, either immediately or within the next 10 years. So that being said, for us, this is no plan B, right? The people of Texas, by and large, are looking at this right now, uh, and, and they're they're asking this solid question. That is, if if we were independent already, would we join the union? right? What are the selling points? And, and they're willing to overcome a lot. You even had Ted Cruz and we've got the video on our YouTube channel. You even had Ted Cruz, uh, in a podcast taping down at Texas A&M university being asked the Texas question. He says, look, I'm not there yet. He said, but if they go to federalize our state elections, 
right? And he and he goes and names off cer- you know certain criteria that are effectively Democrat platform planks at this point actual policy positions with legislation on the floor of the United States Congress. He said, I'm all in. You had Chip Roy, a uh, U.S. congressman from Texas, stand on the floor of the Texas House of Representatives and, and, and citing what was happening on the border, stood up and said, why did we even join the union? Right. So I, I, I'm not I'm not trying to be combative or evade the question. What I'm saying is I, I fundamentally disagree with the premise of the question. So you, you think it is a, a, a very much within the Overton window in Texas? A- absolutely. A- okay. Absolutely. So yeah. that, that's good. But I, you know, I, I wish you well. I, I just hope that you don't do it too early, because if if a, if, if a, a referendum does get passed, you know that the propaganda is going to just explode. You know, all the seniors are going to lose their Medicare and their oh, social yeah. security. And, uh, you know, um, they're going to let you, grandma die. Hey, we saw that when, when Biederman filed a uh, state representative, Kyle Biederman filed house bill 1359, which was our Texas independence referendum act this last session immediately before he had even gotten the bill officially filed, they already started that. This is going to mean that grandma's going to die in a ditch. You know, I mean, they, they started that, but guess what? We've seen this happen. We saw it happen in 2014 during the Scottish independence referendum when it got the moniker called Project Fear. Yeah. We saw it We saw it there, and that was not ultimately what tanked the Scottish referendum. But we saw them whip out and dust off that old playbook in 2016 with the Brexit vote. And, and ultimately what we find is, is that in the face of what people are seeing in their everyday lives versus the Project Fear, uh, people are choosing the hope of, choosing hope over fear. Uh, they know that they pull out a globe, they spin it around, they put their finger on any landmass that's not Antarctica, and they realize that those people have the right of self-government and don't have to take a knee to two and a half million unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. Yep. No, I, I agree with that. So I, I, I remember, if you got to win. Uh, I let, let me tell you, that's all I think about every day, because after doing this for 25 years, I want a vacation. <laughs> okay. And um, do you want to talk about the Chinese, Russians, and possibly the Saudis trading in other currency and what that means for us? Sure. The Chinese and Saudis talking about switching from the dollar to, to the want to the Chinese yuan for oil purchases is, is another attack on the dollar as the world reserve currency. Uh Virtually everybody that you hear talking about that thinks that losing our reserve currency status would be awful. Um, I have mixed views on it. I think in the short run, it would lead to a lot of short-term pain. But I think a lot of the things that the federal government does, uh, principally its ability to print money, are a function of the fact that the dollar is treated as the world's reserve currency. And if we no longer, if we lost that status, it would effectively take that power away from the government. Uh, unfortunately, the short-term pain would be that all these foreigners that are now holding dollars because so much of international trade is conducted in dollars would then repatriate the dollars and try and buy yuan or whatever the new currency is. Uh, and it would exacerbate the already spiraling inflation that we have right now. Uh, but in, in the long run, I think it's actually beneficial for us. Uh, we we couldn't, we, we, we benefit from being the reserve currency, but our government has decided to abuse its position. And uh, the abuse that it's doing is much worse than any of the benefit that we otherwise get. So 
uh, I think we'd get some short-term pain and some long-term benefit from, from, Ed, from that. And let me ask you the simple question coming from a simpleton. What stops the other countries from just doing it? What stops the other countries from doing what? Getting off the dollar. What, what is keeping them with the dollar? Well, until the last two years, the United States has been relatively, relatively uh, less awful in inflating our currency than other countries, uh, at, you know, as bad as things have been. Um, but the, you know, in the last couple of years, um, they've gone completely off the deep end, uh, first with uh, COVID and, you know, all of the other uh, crazy spending. Um, and now I think a country would sort of look at it and say, you know, maybe we can do better than the United States, even if we are corrupt. That's true. But Steve, just to get to your, your question, though, the system was intentionally designed that way. In 1944, at the Bretton Woods Conference, the, the, the world leaders got together and reformulated the gold standard. And basically, they made the dollar convertible to gold and everything else convertible into the dollar. And that's how it all started. We're, we're now living on the remnants of that system, which was ended when Nixon took us off, took us off gold in 1973, 71 and then 73. Um, and we just haven't officially, no, no country has officially switched the way the Saudis and the Chinese are talking now. A lot of people have talked about it, but what happened was over, over that 30, 25 to 30 year period, it was the design of the system for the dollar to be the world reserve currency and for international trade to be conducted in dollars. And so foreigners accumulated lots and lots of dollars. And the US government started running larger and larger budget deficits which were financed by these foreigners lending us money. Um, and that's, that's sort of how the system started. And now we're sort of on autopilot of that system, even though the gold tie is no longer in place, even though in theory, what you're saying is true. Um, it's only because of what Ed said that the, the US government's printing press has gone out of control, not just in the last two years, but really since the 2008 financial crisis, um, we've basically been printing money at a exponential borderline hyperbolic rate for the last 12 years or 13 or 14 years now. Gosh, time flies. Um, so that's, that's the answer to your question. Inertia to an extent. Well, I mean, well, not just inertia, again, but I mean, if you're, if you're the Philippines, right. Who's going to accept whatever currency they use, probably use the dollar to be honest, but who's going to accept, you know, Duterte's, uh, Filipino coins or, or Filipino paper for, uh, for something real, like, like oil. I mean, nobody's going to accept right. that. So, I mean, you have to have a system with these, uh, you know, a lot of these countries around the world where they can actually buy and sell things in, um, in a currency that people are actually going to use. Now, it could be the yen or it could be the mark or uh, the or euro now. Uh, and then the, uh, you know, then or the dollar, it just so happens that they, um, you know, they have these, they buy our bonds, and then they have this reserve of this much dollars, and then, you know, they can issue their currency and then people will believe, well, okay, if the currency is worth something because it has all of this, uh, you know, American bonds uh, sort of backing it up. 
And as far as for real stuff like oil, um, it's always been in dollars, but there's no reason why people can't barter, countries can, and that's, what, that's essentially what uh, Russia and China are doing. They're, they're gonna go back to a barter system or Russia and India, uh, Russia and Iran. Uh, I don't think Russia is gonna pay in quote unquote rubles for any of this stuff. Um, I think they're gonna barter. And what's Saudi Arabia's angle all of a sudden trying to, like they're supposed to be our friends supposedly? Well, I don't, this, nobody's our friends, you know, the Australians are our friends, nobody else, you know, but uh, I, I think they want to sell uh, oil or buy oil or whatever. I, I, I don't know why Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia wants to sell oil to China and they want to get stuff from China. So if, remember, if they're doing it in one, which is not a convertible currency, then essentially all they're doing is bartering. It's a it's a two organization you know two organization agreement to barter oil for for stuff. It's 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 not a sort of global transaction. Okay, um, for those of us who know nothing about economy and money, um, I know that may surprise you due to my ethnicity, but we'll leave that one hanging out there with the curveball. You you missed that gene, you know. You just you just missed it. And listen, for some and reason, I don't eat Chinese food. Okay, oh, I know. On Christmas, you don't eat Chinese food on Christmas. My, my condolences. Yeah, oh my God. But is part of this you're saying a function of how stable the currency is said to be? Is that kind of what we're saying here? Yeah, that's part right. of it. Yeah. How much confidence you have in the central bank not to go off and do something insane, like our central bank has gone it's off and done off something and insane? Okay, yeah. and then yeah. the choices are basically what dollar, euro, yuan. What else? No, you- no, the the. The renminbi, which is the Chinese currency, also called yuan, which just means coin, um, is not a convertible currency. You can't take it out of the country. So, well, I mean, if you have uh, if 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 you have a bank account with a billion yuan in it, you can't uh, you can't change it for dollars and and uh, open an account in Bank of America. I mean, they just won't let out, you do that. take it out of China. They have capital controls. The yeah, they have capital controls. But you, you literally can't, can't take it out of China. Right. Right. So if so, that's why I'm saying it's really you bargain, can't go right? to the currency because exchange up the road. When the Saudis say, "Okay, you can pay us for this oil in yuan," that's what they're saying. What does that actually mean in practice? That means that. Uh, the Saudis are going to open a bank account in Beijing in a Chinese bank and uh, whoever is buying it, uh, buying the oil is going, to, is going to write them a check in one and they're going to be deposited in this Chinese bank in China because they can't take it out of the country. Now, so you're, you're a Saudi Arabia oil Aramco or, or whatever, the royal family or whatever, you now have a bank account in China, in yuan, where you have some billions of, of yuan in it. Well, what can you do? Well, one, you can buy stuff in China and have it exported. That's, that's the one thing you can do. But on the other hand, how many billions of dollars worth of stuff of, of yuan are you going to let build up in this account in China? Because again, the United States has behaved just intolerably badly over the pandemic and now with these sanctions that everybody is losing trust in the United States, but nobody has trust in China. 
the fact that you have like, I'll use dollars, you have $50 billion in a bank account in China. Do you really have that money? Can now, they take it away because, instantly? That's because we're, we don't trust them not to just steal it. I think that the Saudi that's angle right. though, Ed, I think you hit, up, hit the nail on the head with the sanctions part. I think that putting money in China is a way of removing it from the US dominated world financial system. And right. Now, again, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of, of Russia invading Ukraine, as you know. Um, and some of the sanctions are probably good, but they have gone so far with the sanctions that, that, that nobody's going to trust the United States anymore. And, and that's a real problem. Now, nobody's going to trust Russia either. So let's, let's get that out of the way. That Russia is not going. Russia is in real, real serious trouble over this, because nobody's going to trust them either. But if the trust erodes in the United States, if the United States is thought to be completely mercurial, that we can just steal people's money or stop them from getting their money or freeze their bank accounts on random stuff, whether it's uh, Nick Fuentes or Vladimir Putin, they can just well, you can't get your money anymore. Um, then the United States is going to lose the trust of everyone in the world. And that is going to cause a real problem for us. And I think the government is, is being very, the government is always very short-sighted. It's being extremely short-sighted now. Not that I want Russia to win. I like the Ukrainians and defending their country and whatnot, but um, I, actually don't I, think don't think, I don't think the United, all, States, the United States government has never, Anybody in the United States government has never played chess against someone who can think four moves ahead because they can only I, think one move ahead. I think they are thinking ahead, though, Ed. I think that this is all on purpose. And the goal is to destroy the dollar and to replace it with a central bank digital currency. That's that's obvious to me what the game plan is. They, they certainly want that. But the problem is, if they destroy the dollar, they're going to impoverish all of the people who have dollars, which are not me, but all the rich people who donate to the campaigns. So I, I, I don't see that as the plan. I see that as, as they want to replace, they want to get rid of cash. And so they want to replace the dollar with a digital dollar. That's that's certain. But there's a lot of constituencies in the Democratic Party who need uh, who need cash. And I don't know whether I, I, that, I just don't see I don't it. think their goal is to get rid of cash. I think their goal is to surveil us and enslave us. Yeah, yeah, that too. But that's why they want no, to get rid of cash. That's why they want to get rid of cash. How are we going to pay all those uh, illegals crossing the border under off the books? You got Third party out of town post dated hot check. That that's right. You can say, well, this this Just will, like, if we eliminate cash, we will eliminate like uh, drugs and, uh, you know, that's part uh, of how they're selling it, get after the underground economy, gambling and, and prostitution, and all these things. Yeah, no, that's just not going to happen. The drug dealers and, the, you know, the people who run human trafficking rings, they're all big donors. What do you think? I heard I the think, other day. I, I'll tell I, you what I, I think. I think that the Democrats are willing to jettison any issue for their ultimate goal, which is total power. Yeah, All these I, issues are just means to an end and the end is getting total power. I don't think they're that, uh, I don't think they're that smart. I read the other day that uh, Putin had invested billions of dollars in buying politicians in Ukraine. Just like both the Russians and Ukrainians have invested billions of dollars in buying politicians in the United States. So Putin made this large investment of money. It's like he bought 
everyone. Everyone was on his payroll. And so that's one of the reasons why he expected to sort of roll in and have no. And all of these people betrayed him. They took his money and they, they said fight. And so I, I don't think that. Um, I, I, I don't think that the I think the people want to eliminate cash so that they can get at the underground economy and so they can do all the things that you're afraid of. I just don't think they quite have. The I don't think their goal to is to get to the underground economy either. I think that's just a rationalization too. That's part of their hook to get us to support it. Their goal is control. That's what they're after. They're after total control, total surveillance, total enslavement. And we and they don't care if they impoverish us. Look at what they're doing now. I mean, two years of COVID lockdowns, they're trying to impoverish us. They've been trying to impoverish us. I, I don't see that that's I don't I mean, I don't see how anyone could think that they're trying to enrich us. I mean, everything that Biden is doing is designed to make us poorer. Everything. And is this part of the quote unquote Klaus Schwab business? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, he he he's certainly in favor of this. I, I think see, the thing is, though, I don't think what Ed is saying is true. I, I don't think the you know the the, olig- the american oligarchs have it in you know that they want to enslave all of us they or or impoverish all of us they certainly they certainly want to gain power and and gain money which they've done in the covid lockdowns you know 3 trillion dollars worth of wealth went from the middle class to the the jeff bezoses and whatnot of the world and that's certainly not good um but if they destroy the American economy, you know, their, their wealth goes with it. So I, I don't quite think they are These that. These people are not Americans. They don't view themselves as Americans. Yeah. I don't think that they have any loyalty to America whatsoever. They, they have their money in offshore bank accounts. They've got a house in, in Monaco. They've got a, a castle. You know, I mean, they've got places all over the world. I don't think they have any loyalty to the United States. And I think they're not just perfectly willing. I think they're eager to sacrifice the United States of America and destroy the United States of America so that they can take over the carcass. Well, if that happens, I think we're all moving to Texas. <laughs> Yeehaw. Well, I think that's actually p- part of that whole issue. The problem is, would you accept illegal immigrants from, from Virginia and North Carolina into an independent <laughs> Texas? Well, look, I tell people, I tell people, look, if you want to be, if you want to be a part of the revolution, you better get here before you need a visa. That's number one. Uh, but number, number two, uh, what I also tell people is this, because I, you know, we get asked this a lot. If you got to be native born to be in the organization, crazy stuff like that. And, and this is what I tell people. Uh, I remind them that native born Texans. Yeah. I, we get asked that an awful lot, uh, you know, because people are apprehensive. They, they relocate here from California or someplace else. And, you know, they're coming here because they want to be a part of Texas becoming self-governing and independent. And so I tell them, look, here's the thing, Travis Bowie Crockett gave their lives at the Alamo for independence. Who are we to set the bar any higher? You know, that's the bottom line. And, um, you know, post Texas, Texas will have a sensible immigration system and policy. I've always been an advocate of an Australian style point system. Uh, but you know, so, something along those lines, but I, I, my, my suggestion to people is to get here before you need a visa to get in. Okay. Just bought this house. Oh. It's awful. Oh my God. 
Well, you know, I, I don't know that we're suited like we were back during the Republic days to give, you know, 600 acres to everybody who fought in the Texian army. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, uh, there'll be a lot of kudos. I, I tell people, look, you come down here and help us win independence. There'll be pigeons crapping on a statue of you 50 years from now. You, um, you, the, <laughs> one acre will be fine, but no mule, please. I don't, I can do without the mule. I'd like to think that if Texas goes, there'll be other options because I, I think that would be the first domino. Well, I, I think that's ultimately it. You know, this is what, you know, the project that Stephen and I've been working on while we've been talking to Elliot so much uh, and, and really connecting with other independence movements, not just here in, in the States, but around the world, uh, is that this issue of self-determination is a global trend. You know, it's just, it's washing up here and we're, we're moving uh, what's happening in the United States right now is part of a much larger, much longer global trend toward autonomy and self-government. And, uh, you know, when, when we support the right of self-determination for one another here in the States, uh, then, then it only helps our, ourselves. You know, I mean, it, we, we have to stand up for this right, much like people are decrying the, you know, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine for whatever reason, the violation of the territorial integrity and their sovereignty. Uh, we should all be looking at that fight right now, that violation of our sovereignty and our territorial integrity in our own states, the ability to govern ourselves and ask ourselves in every state this question, who better to govern this state, us or two and a half million unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, and look, uh, that the founders couldn't even have imagined, right, at the time of the Constitution or, you know, independence, that the country was going to be from one ocean to another. Yeah. Right. We have to remember that the Constitution <laughs> is ratified and we still have 13 colonies. Right. So uh, despite all the, the major problems we have, the fact that we're really, really living in a post-constitutional time, uh, I don't think the founders would have wanted one government overseeing that that many people from one shore to another. Yeah. Look, that's the argument that Dr. Thomas Naylor made, you know, and I, and I know, I don't know if we've talked about him before when I was on here the last time, but uh, Dr. Naylor was a professor emeritus of economics at Duke University and wound up leaving Duke to move to Vermont to form the second Vermont Republic. And people thought he was like a, you know, a Don Quixote type uh, tilted at windmills to even, to, to even posit that Vermont could be its own self-governing nation. And, and his point was really one about politics of scale. You know, that was really, I think, kind of the bedrock of his, his ideas on, on this issue was politics of scale. At what point do you have so many different people, so diverse a geography, so diverse cultural experiences, diverse a history, on and on and on, until the point that it can no longer be governed under one umbrella. And that's exactly what we're looking at, you know, just kind of circle it to the very beginning of this, we were talking about the immigration border. We have to face here in Texas that our border policy is being dictated by the likes of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and people like that, by a whole bunch of Congress critters and two and a half million unelected bureaucrats that don't have to deal with the day-to-day -day impact of, of what it is that we're experiencing here in Texas. Okay. Folks, as our time passes, I want to give everybody a chance to talk about their uh, most important issue of the day. Gina? I don't have a most important. Um, skip me. Come back. Come back. <laughs> Mike? I mean, we haven't really talked about Ukraine yet, so. <laughs> Speak your mind. Um, you know, at, at this point, I, I'm still, I'm still not sure what the right approach is for America in this 
you know, in, in terms of supporting Ukraine. Um, you know, I have concerns about Putin and what his endeavors are. And on the other hand, I don't want this to see this escalate. So, you know, I think the question right now is, is do we do we actually continue? Do, do we make more of an effort to arm them, to supply them with planes and let them do their own battle? Um, or is, is Putin just see that as an act of war on our part? I don't know. I mean, you know, did anybody watch Zelensky this morning? Yeah, I did. What did he say? Anything important? It. Was it worth watching? Uh, I mean, he called he called it. No, he called out Biden. He did call out Biden. Um, and at least that's how I took it as being kind of a coward that he hasn't been leading um, and said, hey, this is because the first lady's husband had COVID. Isn't that the problem? That must be it. I, that's I, gotta be it. I didn't Windsor. like the speech. I thought it was too much obvious propaganda leaning to pull on, on emotions leaning on sort of american uh emotions heartstrings relate, yeah it, that's and related that's what it was to meant to do 9 11 and pearl harbor and quoting lincoln and you know it was all too much i have a need i have a dream <laughs> yeah martin luther king of course that's he a, had yeah. to quote martin luther king to get the black caucus oh, on board ultimately and, it's about doing what's in our interest and is, is it in our interest to take steps that will defeat Putin and Ukraine. And he, he asked for a no-fly zone, which no. is, is quite impractical that it, that in, in the sense that even if it was a good idea, I don't say it's a good idea, but even if it was a good idea, it's very, very difficult for the United States to implement a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, I, I don't know how we would do it. So, it, it, I mean, I know how we would do it because I've been working for the military for many years, but it basically involves destroying a bunch of um, anti-aircraft systems in Russia. I think he did that just to put pressure on the United States in all honesty. So, I, yeah, I mean, but it, it, it's just I, he's he's asking for World War Three and I, I'm just right. I, I, but do you? I but I don't think he asked that. I don't think he asked that thinking that he was going to get a yes to that. You don't I think, think so. that? No, no. I mean, they've Why been bother? very clear, huh? Why bother? Dramat- it was a dramatic masterpiece this morning. That's what it was. It was. He is a great. The guy's a great actor. Come on, no matter what, the guy's yeah. a great actor, a trained actor. Yeah, it was well, great. I mean, putting that video out there it was what two minutes of seeing the carnage. I mean, I was crying as I was sitting there praying for people on both sides. That's what yeah. it was meant to do. Yeah, you well, know? I'll, that I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one thing. It's really interesting that from the PR perspective, they're they're winning. They're they're totally winning. Oh yeah. And, and you would think that we'd have had a conflict by now where people with their iPhones and everything like that would have been making an impact. But this conflict, this war, more than any other to this point, has done that. And it's, I think it's really, well, how can, really- How can the Russian side of the iPhone war be shown when they're being censored and blocked? No, that's not true. That's not true. The, that's not true? The, okay, so this is what the Russians did. I, I, I told you it's the first iPhone war, right? So they took all the phones from the soldiers before they invaded the country. Why? Because you can pinpoint people uh, GPS. by their, if, if you know, if the phone, sorry, <laughs> the phone is connected to the network, then you can see who it is. And you can get the IME code and the phone number and the phone number is going to be Russian. And so if any, all these Russian soldiers were running around with iPhones, 
the cellular network in Ukraine, they could find, like could pinpoint the entire army. So they <laughs> took away their phones, which makes sense from a military standpoint, but then they don't get to document any of their successes and they don't get to put it out. You know, but still, Twitter, what, are they, what are they gonna put out to the world that's gonna bring people well, to their side? I, you know, uh, the same sort of things, all the, and they have, I've seen them because they're allowed on Twitter. I mean, like, what, team, are, my, what, are, our, what are what are they showing? <laughs> oh, all of the all of the uh, casualties that happened in in the Russian controlled Donbass, uh -huh. and there's just you know randomly you know we're fighting a war. Here's our victory. We captured these these Ukrainian stuff. We but this is all from journalists, right? They're not the soldiers, right? So it's okay. there's much less of them, but I see them all the time. I mean, you just have to know where to look. Have they said anything else about the journalist or the editor, producer, whatever she was that came up uh, with a protest sign? Yeah, she was. Um, Did they find she was her interrogated ever? for 14 hours with no lawyer? And then she was sentenced to uh, some sort of probation plus a fine of 30,000 rubles, which is like nowadays two hundred and eighty dollars. And um, well, she can I, start a GoFundMe and take care. And, and she was fired. So, you I mean, other than that, that's what, so it wasn't that bad. See, I, I'm very happy to live in a country where we don't imprison political prisoners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. As a friend uh, of the, mine the, from J6 the, is getting ready to get locked up in like two days. At, yeah. at, you know, at, at, at an hour and 15 minutes, I don't want to get a big argument, but I mean, that's the, the problem that I had with Ed's very eloquent and passionate uh, argument in favor of, uh, I don't know whether it was in favor of Russia, but or not in favor of Ukraine is, you know, yes, the government of Ukraine is extremely corrupt and the government of Russia is extremely corrupt and the government of the United States is extremely corrupt. Um, but none of those premises lead to, uh, in my view, the conclusion that um, Russia ought to rule uh, Ukraine against the people's will, uh, because it really is the people's will, to be honest. We see that now. We, we see that it's not, you know, the corrupt government that's holding the country together. It's not the corrupt oligarchs, you know, most of whom have flown elsewhere that are, that are holding uh, the people together. People aren't being forced to defend uh, Ukraine. They're doing it out of love of their own country. And so I certainly hope that they continue to fight uh, the Russians. They are uh, Russians haven't made a whole lot of progress in the last week, and uh, hopefully and, uh, it'll, it'll stalemate and they'll come to a, a peace uh, settlement. There are noises about uh, draft peace agreements that are um, being talked about, uh, mostly status quo antebellum, but formalized. Um, so, you know, maybe we can get out of this without too much of a disaster. And, and, and what would that look like? Well, I mean, it would go back to the status quo, but be du jour instead of de facto, you know? I mean, basically Ed, the, the Donbass would be independent. Russia would own Crimea. Mm -hmm. Ukraine would get Ukraine. It would not be a part of NATO. Okay, bottom line, would Laser get to go back and get his stuff? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, if he can get there. The, the, the issue, though, is the sticking point is Russia wants Ukraine to be disarmed. And Ukraine's like, ha, 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 no. Not disarmed, neutralized. No, disarmed. 
Neutralized, yes, in the sense that they're neutral. neutral. Right. Um, but, you know, they say, well, neutral like Sw Sweden or Austria. Those people are not neutral. They're not part of NATO. But the idea that Finland and Sweden and Austria are neutral is ridiculous. They are absolutely not neutral. Not part of NATO, but they're not neutral. Um, so I, I don't, but they want them to have no weapons, no army. Didn't that work very well for Germany post-World War One? Well, yeah. And I, I think the Ukrainians are like, what are you talking about? No army. You just freaking invaded us. We're not going to give up our army. Uh, so that's the sticking point. Ed, when two dictatorships fight each other, we don't have a dog in that fight. There are wars all over the globe, especially in Africa today, involving one dictatorship invading another. And we don't have any interest there. We don't have any interest in Ukraine. Oh, but we uh, do. Other than, well, the interest that we have, I'd love to get into this because that was what really I wanted to talk about today. The interest that the United States seems to have in Ukraine is that it's a playground for our oligarchs to to make to, to engage in their corruption outside the, the spotlight of the United States. And I think the bio labs that came that came out in the last week or so, that's the big story of the week to me. And I, and I think. I think we have to stop and ask ourselves, why, why did Biden goad Putin into fighting, into starting this war? Why, why Ukraine? And I mean, I don't think I have an answer for that, but I, one, one possibility is that they're looking to release another virus on us. Uh, I think, but regardless, I, I do think that they wanted war, whether it was in Ukraine or somewhere else, precisely because war is the perfect rationale for extending emergency powers and their emergency powers are, have been expiring and they want more emergency powers. They're creating a crisis, which they're going to use to, to, to justify emergency powers going forward. But right now they want a war and they want, they want more emergency powers. And I think that's what's going on. I think that they chose Ukraine because the corruption there is so bipartisan and engaged in by so by both parties so deeply that they expected everybody to rally behind it, which is pretty much what's happened. And it's only a, a select few people that are asking, well, wait a minute, what, why are we going to defend Ukraine? What, what is our interest in Ukraine? What is, what, what is so vital about the Ukrainian border that we need to defend it? And you know, not many people are asking that. And I think a big reason for that is the corruption in Ukraine, not just direct corruption like Hunter Biden, but all the NGOs that are using it as, a, as their own little playground to, to engage in corruption outside of the United States and do things that can't be done here. I think that both parties are doing it and both parties are profiting from it. And that's, that's why Ukraine is so vital to them. That's my opinion on it. Well, there, I mean, I think there's, um, there's multiple factions in any oligarchy and ours is the same. Um, there is the, um, there's the Hillary Clinton, Victoria Newland, um, you know, the, the, the warmongers who, who are trying to talk Zelensky into retaking the Donbass. Um, rather than, you know, some coming up with some sort of compromise. Um, and, and the whole international order fetishists who, you know, think that the answer after World War II was no more arguing about borders. 
Um, I think that's kind of in everybody's brain is like, you know, arguments about borders had Europe in, in wars, um, you know, for 2,500 years. Let's, let's not argue about borders anymore. Um, I think this is fantastic because just like uh, the border in the United States should be changed uh, if Texas wants to leave, um, then, uh, you know, the same thing in, in various portions of the states who want, the portions of states that want secession in, in Europe. On the other hand, I do think that um, the US has these entangling alliances and you may not like them. Um, and I don't. It, might, it might have been better that we, uh, you know, we stopped NATO when the Soviet Union fell. Um, but I got to tell you, our NATO partners do not think that way. And because basically they're, they've been afraid of Russia for 500 years. So um, it's- and, They certainly and don't this, act like they're afraid. Well, why they've they so been reliant? the ones- They've been the ones leading that on Russian energy. They've been the ones lead. Well, you know, Merkel, whatever. They've been ones leading. Joe Biden has led from behind on this whole thing. Everything that the United States has done has been urged on it by the Europeans. So Biden has not done anything at all um, out in front on this whole thing. So it's. uh, um, I don't think I agree with that one, but go ahead. uh, And they do not. The our. NATO allies do not want Russian troops on the border of, of Poland and Slovakia and um, and Hungary. And, and the reason, I guess, is the fact that it's, um, it's too tempting for whether it's Putin or some future dictator to, uh, to get the Warsaw Pact countries back because it's, it's relatively flat and unlike Ukraine, they have decent roads decent railways it's it's a t- it, 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 they just don't want them there they don't want russian troops there. the russians couldn't just roll the ukrainians how could they have any delusions of grandeur that they could conquer western europe i mean it's oh so well impossible. not today obviously but they're talking they're they're worried about you know ukraine you know surrendering and then russian troops uh you know camping out in in lviv or wherever uh it's, it's just like they're worried about the Russian troops uh, in Belarus for the same reason. They don't want Russian troops in Belarus either. And I think that's part of the settlement is, you know, yeah, OK, you can have X, Y and Z, but get the troops back the hell into Russia. I think that's kind of, you know, what it's not always totally black and, and white. And yeah, in a vacuum is Ukraine. Uh, have anything to do with our national interest? No, but does Putin have something to do with our national interest and what he does? Sure, of course. You know, and again, we don't know what's in his head and what. Well, you know, the weird thing. The weird thing, Mike, is oh. like, you know, again, the United States has behaved atrociously under Biden, um, and to a certain extent under Obama before him. But the fact that the United States sort of rules the waves and and the skies has has kept you know the idea of of trade which you know as much as we dislike certain aspects of trade like with china um has has made all of our lives richer and so the sort of the free flow of goods it, it, that's what the us navy and air force has done and i think that and that's what the british navy uh, did before so for 200 years we've sort of had 
a global hegemon like protecting the freedom to trade. And suppose we didn't have that, which I think is kind of the Washingtonian view of no you know, entangling alliances. The United States would, would be safe, but, but I, we'd be a lot poorer, I think, because of the fact that uh, trade would be a lot less. Now, I know we don't happen to like the trade with China, and I certainly don't like that. But, uh, you know, I, they, the post office sent me my next COVID test. It's, the government's massive. We now have eight COVID tests in the house, you know, the first four and the second four, uh, right after I don't care about COVID anymore because I already had it and I'm done. And so that it's the government, they just sent it to us. And what it says on the COVID test is made in China. <laughs> like, have we learned nothing over? And, and the answer is yes. You know, we have learned nothing over the last two years. Um, getting back to world trade though, generally world trade makes everybody richer, generally speaking. And I think that um, without right. the US Navy and Air Force, we would be in trouble and we would be a lot poorer. Um, and I think the Chinese and the Russians and you know, to a certain extent, the other powers of the world um, want to interdict it and control it. And I think it's probably bad because from this perspective, the United States and the British empire were, were, are relatively benign, even if our government is a bunch of idiots. So I think everything has, I think one of the reasons why the sanctions are so stupid in a lot of ways is because we're basically abusing the principle behind American hegemony, which is to protect a free freedom of trade. That's precisely why they're not stupid, because these people are trying to, to take down the United States of America. The sanctions are aimed at us, not at Putin, not at Russia. They're aimed at us and to the Western Europeans. That's the whole point of them. It's, de it's designed to make us feel more pain. It's designed to make us poorer. It's designed to create crisis, a crisis here in America so that they can take advantage of. This is, it's not, I mean, that's the whole point of them. I don't think that's the whole point of them. I think that's one of the effects of them. Certainly, I think the, whole, the point of them is to make Russia poorer so that they will think twice about doing this. And I think they are, they are working 100% on that. Now, that doesn't mean that Putin is going to surrender or anything, but I think that, oh, that's another thing, by the way, on this peace agreement. If the U.S. doesn't 100% agree to remove all sanctions on Russia, if the Russians and Ukrainians come to a peace agreement, then it's the end of the world. So we will tell whether you're right or whether I'm right, as if there is a peace agreement, whether all of the U.S. sanctions, you know, if, if Russia and Ukraine come to an agreement, then all the sanctions based on Russia being in Ukraine should go away. And if they do, then that shows the people were more interested in Russia than they are in us. But if they don't, then you were right and I was wrong, and the sanctions are really designed to control us. So we'll see. I'll, who... take, I'll take that bet, Ed. I don't know if they're about to do a peace treaty, but I'll take that bet any day. Well, they are going to do a peace treaty one way or the other because nobody's winning this fight. Uh, the Russians don't have the forces to take Ukraine and Ukraine doesn't have the forces to kick Russia out. So they are going to come to a peace agreement. It might be now, it might be 
a month from now, it might be a year from now, but there is not going to be a winner on this. So I, I think what if what if the whole point of, of the war and of arming the Ukrainians is to to make Ukraine into another Lebanon, to make it into another you know perpetual civil war that military contractors can fund for the for forever and and, you know, create more chaos. That would be true. And that uh, that would be true if it was Ukrainians fighting Ukrainians, just like it was Lebanese fighting Lebanese. But the Russian soldiers have absolutely no interest in staying there like like uh, Iraq. You, you saw today there was all these letters from um, Russian servicemen published where it's like, yeah, I don't want to go back because it's all completely screwed up. That, that's really the problem Putin is facing. Right. He, he can he can win. He can destroy the country take it over, but ma- maintaining it and keeping it, I think is worth. Oh, I don't think, he, I don't think he has enough. I don't think he has but, enough ammunition. You know, to destroy see, you know what? You, you don't think so? Assuming, that's, see, you guys are assuming that Putin's goal is conquest. And I don't think that's his goal. I think his goal has been what he said it was. Namely, it's a red line for Ukraine to be in NATO. And we are not going to allow Ukraine to be in NATO. And we will do whatever we have to, to neuter them so they can't join NATO. I don't think Putin's goal is to reconstitute the Soviet empire or the Russian empire. I don't think his goal is to occupy the country. I think his goal is to neuter the country and make it so that NATO is not going to be in there. That's well, his goal. I, obviously, that article that was put on the you know, various Russian news outlets that I read from a, f- a few weeks ago and then and then taken down when the war didn't go the way the Kremlin planned um, uh, was much more about um, expanding greater Russia than yeah. it was about NATO. But assuming you're right and then his goal is out of NATO, the Ukrainians have already agreed. They're 100%. Yeah, okay, we won't join NATO. Right. So the war should but stop the, tomorrow if you were but right. The, oh, right. But the Americans are the ones who haven't agreed from day one. Biden is the one who's goaded this war because Biden and Harris said, we're not taking Ukraine membership in NATO off the table. I think um, Biden and Harris aren't in charge. I think it's Victoria Newland's in charge. But um, I mean, oh, Biden and yeah. Harris, come on. They don't do anything. All right. Well, they're speaking for the government, though. I mean, I think the puppeteers are telling them what to say. You know, it's funny because the, the oligarchs that. Uh, not rule Russia, but. In collaboration with Putin, um, uh, you know extract money from Russia and the oligarchs that extract money from Ukraine. I mean, I doubt their enemies with one another, just like I doubt their enemies with the oligarchs that control the United States. I, I, I wonder whether this might not be solved behind cl- closed doors at some point. Um, if they want, it wants to be, they want it to be solved. I don't believe they do. I think that there's an ulterior motive here. And I think the American government has pushed war and is, is the instigator of war here. And if the American government really cared about the Ukrainian people, it would be trying to broker a peace treaty and stop the killing. But they're not interested in that. Why yeah, I that? agree. I, I agree. I, th- I think if the United States was serious, that we would be working to um, broker a peace, a peace treaty. But th- there's yeah. no one home. The United what do you States mean government. No one home? Has... Why, why do you think they're not Ed, trying to break peace it? What what incentive? Before you're saying that they wanted Ukraine to be their playground, yep. you know, right? Then why yep. would they why would they want to provoke Putin into invading the country where they're all 
you know, make, well, making that I, that's life a good question. I don't have a great answer for that one, but I do. But one possible answer is that because the corruption is so bipartisan and both parties, whether it's Romney, whether it's John Kerry, Nancy Pelosi, Hunter Biden, both both sides are sending their their families over there and and engaging in the corruption. And I think that the, the puppeteers decided Ukraine is a place where we can rally the American people on both sides of the aisle. We can rally Democrats and Republicans to support war or warlike actions. And, and I think to that extent, it's it's worked exactly as they expected. Now, why they were willing to risk their playground, I don't have a good idea, good answer for that, other than my speculation earlier in the show when I said, maybe they're looking to release another virus on us from one of those bio labs. Maybe. All right, I have one closing remark. I want to know why Tulsi Gabbard bad, Jane Fonda good. So maybe we could talk about that next week. Because I remember when treason in an active war was something good. You do? Well, I mean, obviously, Jane Fonda was a hero. We're not belligerents in this war. So therefore, I don't, so all of this um, censorship of, of Russia or a RT or anything, um, and, and all of this accusations of treason are ridiculous because we are not belligerents. If, even if we were belligerents, I don't think um, you know, censorship is, is but I'm, good. I'm glad to see that treason is making a comeback after Jane Fonda. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks. That's good old Joy Behar. Everybody, 30 to 45 seconds to wrap up if they want. Daniel, you're our guest. 30 to 45 seconds. Go. Yeah, uh, here's here's the bottom line, folks. Uh, this this fight is so much larger than one election, one campaign, uh, one whatever it is. Uh, it's literally in, in the name of the show, the Liberty Block, right? It's about liberty. And in that fight, we can never stop. We can never sleep. And, and I, I have to say this, uh, if anyone wants to find out more about uh, the organization, you can head over to uh, thetnm.org or texitnow.org. And uh, we, we welcome anyone and everyone who believes in the cause of freedom, liberty, and independence. And thank you all to you guys for, for having it. I mean, I got to sit in on this wonderful uh, Ukraine-Russia discussion. And all I can think of is uh, when you watch the Hatfields and McCoys fight, be thankful your last name is Smith. Thank you. Mike, anything quick? Gene, anything quick? Yeah, the only thing I want to talk about that um, we didn't really cover and it's not really that important is, um, I guess, the social justice warriors again and all of these different corporations that have pulled out of Russia. Um, I hope people see that it's just it's just a ploy to get attention again. You know, McDonald's has pulled out of there. Nike's pulled out of there. And like Nike's had children making their shoes forever. They've been in China having stuff made by the Uyghur Muslims. Like, come on, man. And now all of a sudden people are like, yay, look what Nike did. They pulled out of Russia. Like, it's, it's a little too late. That's all I got to say on that. And I'm all done. Sorry. Okay. Adam? Uh, well, uh, Gina, just following up on what you said, I think that uh, we've heard forever that when, when a Muslim blows something up, it's never it's not all Muslims. Why isn't it not all Russians? Why are we pouring out vodka? Exactly. And, and, you know, exactly. why is it, why, why are we suddenly judging the entire country as evil? Well, that, um, and that's, but, that's a, that's a valid point because they're taking away jobs for like with McDonald's being closed. Those are just the good Russians that have nothing to do with Putin. 
that are losing their economy, you know, they're losing their wealth, they're losing the way that they feed their family, you know, they're affecting so many through it. All I'll say, I mean, and what I was going to say in, in closing is that I think that we are being manipulated. Yes. I think that I don't think Putin is any kind of a hero, but I don't think Ukraine is a hero. I don't think that Zelensky is a hero. I don't think that we have interests there. But more importantly, I think that we've been being manipulated to support military intervention or military actions like a, like sanctions. And everything that's happening is coordinated and intentional. It's not disparate. It's not uh, unrelated to what's going on in other par parts of the world. I think we're seeing a coordinated effort to attack the United States of America economically first and foremost. And that's what's going on. That's really what the story of the Ukraine-Russia war is. All the dead bodies of the Ukrainian people are just incidental to that, to that war. This is an economic war aimed at the American people and aimed at taking down the dollar and ultimately the United States of America. Ed P, 45 seconds. I think the United States, as we've known it, is, is coming to an end. Um, and I think that there are a number of possible scenarios as we, uh, as we sort of change, as the country changed. I mean, obviously one possibility is we could revert uh, to a free country. Uh, I think that's probably the least obvious one. Um, I think there's a possibility of some sort of a neo-communist dictatorship, which is, you know, semi-woke, semi-environmentalism. I think that's the, you know, Democratic Party uh, issue. Um, there's always a chance of a kind of a reaction to that and sort of a, a sort of a neo-fascist dictatorship. And then the, the fourth thing is some sort of dissolution, partition, dissolution, and whatnot. And getting back with what Daniel is saying, um, if that does happen, I sure do hope I'm on the freedom side of that particular partition. When you work happens. for one of the heads of that whole movement. So one of these days, Elliot may come in handy. <laughs> and with that, I will close. Once again, please send feedback on the show to the Conservatarian Exchange at liberty, libertyblock.com. And we will see you all next week, four o'clock on Wednesday. Thank you so much for being here.